0: people still could not believe what was happening. People would reach out and ask me and say, Evelyn, do you really have to wear a mask outside? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, hang on. And then they're like, do, do you really have to get papers signed by the government, like like papers with a stamp on it to say you can leave your home? Mm. Yes. Do you? And then I'm like, it gets worse. You have to renew that every 14 days so you can get a pass to leave your home for 14 days and then you have to do it again and not only that I'm like I can't leave more than five kilometers from my home I'm not allowed to and people could not believe it like are you sure I'm like yes I'm sure I'm living here they could they just people could not fathom the lengths that our government went to to control our movements and our freedoms over here and what people were seeing on the news was shocking but even that was like a lot of the brute force of it and the physicality of it with the police and the enforcement. But what people didn't see is things that affected the practicality of just everyday living. So that didn't make the news, but it was it was just as devastating and just as gut-wrenching.
1: Today's guest is Evelyn Ray, a former Australian police detective who served in law enforcement for 12 years. But Evelyn resigned from the police just before COVID, which caused some controversy as she revealed herself to be a secret blogger posting about her Christian faith and the fall of Western civilization. But this new freedom unleashed Evelyn, who became one of the most insightful Australian voices in the fight against COVID tyranny. In this episode, we learn what role the government and the police should be, how godlessness has led us to this point, and how we can get out of this mess. This is Eyes Wide Open with me, your host, Lawrence Easman. Big Tech wants to center the truth and restrict our freedoms. They can take away my YouTube, they can take away my Facebook, but they can't take away my mailing list. So if you want to stay connected, get my weekly newsletter by following the link in the description. Now, it's time for our guest... Evelyn Ray, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: I'm really excited to talk to you. You've got a you've got a great story and all of the work that you're doing now is really, really interesting. But you came to prominence during COVID, largely because you had a lot of experience as a police detective. But by some act of divine providence, you resigned just before COVID happened and in some ways unleashed you. To speak your mind and share your insights and knowledge with the world and Australia, so tell us a little bit about that about that experience and how it's made you the woman you are today
0: yeah it was it was a bit of providence, you know sometimes you look back on things and you go, Wow, that's a little bit of you know a thread of wisdom, God's wisdom throughout things because I am sure glad that I wasn't wearing a badge and put in a position where I would have had to go against my conscience and my morality with what police were sort of expected to do for the last few years. But yeah, so February in 2020, I made the hard decision at the time to resign. I resigned on my own terms. I resigned for a whole range of reasons, but you know I had served over a decade, nearly 12 years as a detective. And the time was up and that was it. And I moved on. And then come March, COVID came knocking on everybody's doors. And it was only a short time later that police were doing things that I don't think I could have done in good conscience. And on top of that, the vaccine ended up being mandated for all serving police officers as well. So that would have been another hurdle I would have had to have got past. So I'm really glad that I wasn't involved in it. And I was glad that I had the opportunity as well to be more vocal because We're sort of bound by policy and by rules and regulations when you're wearing a badge, and you can't really publicly speak about political things or cultural things and all of that. You sort of have to be publicly impartial and objective to things, which is ironic considering the position of the police today. They're certainly not objective or impartial anymore, but that's sort of how it stood. And so yeah, I feel like it gave me a really unique perspective because, you know, I've defended the police so uh, fiercely for such a long time, especially during the Black Lives Matter protests in America, you know, the defund police movement. I spoke for the police and I sort of tried to my best to sort of back them up with my experience and knowledge of the inside and what it's actually like. And so, yeah, I had a unique perspective, but it kind of all shifted the last sort of couple of years with the pandemic, <laughs> COVID, mm. because... I had to go against the grain, I guess, and and my sort of uh, taught or sort of learnt nature, which was to defend the boys in blue. And that was difficult, but it had to be done, and I'm glad I could sort of be there to, to do that.
1: I have a difficult relationship with the police myself in that I'm kind of torn, you know, with the whole idea of it because, I mean, we largely don't see a lot of the dirty work that the police have to do on a daily basis they are an essential I think they are an essential need within society you know I don't fully know whether they are an essential but I think they are and (laughs) they do a very important job at some level but at the same time they seem to betray the people they're meant to serve and it's this love-hate relationship that we have with them and it's a little bit like um, Stockholm syndrome sometimes. I don't know what the answer to that is. And I've done quite a bit of research into the police myself over the years. And I've had a few experiences with the police. Um, not all positive. <laughs> Maybe we can get into that <laughs> later. But the office of <laughs> constable, the office of constable is a really ancient office and appears to be a very honorable office in itself in that, you know, it. It's there to protect the community from people who seek to do us harm or specifically to break the king's peace. The king's peace now, isn't it? Not the queen's peace anymore. That's a, uh, a, a, the first new change. And, and I think there's something very deeply honourable about that idea and the oath that the police take you know, to uphold the peace, which is ultimately what we all want is peace and prosperity, isn't it? And I, I, it seems to me the... Either they've always been like they are now and they've got some this fake nostalgic idea about what the police used to be or what we're experiencing is a new police constabulary or a police force. I'm not sure that's something that is a positive development in our, in our civilization. What's your take on that?
0: Look, I think it's always been ripe for exploitation, the police. I think when power and authority is up for grabs. You're going to have evil men and women who are going to take advantage of that. So I think all occupations that wield a sword or that wield justice or who have authority over citizens has a huge gaping void to exploit. And so I think that since the beginning of time, the police have always been in a position where they could do what they have the last few years because I think that's where policing falls into. And I think if people understand the role of the civil government, then we understand the role or the function that police have within that civil government. I think as a society, we have gotten all of that wrong. And I think we have misunderstood what the government should be in our lives and the relationship that we should have with the government. And in turn, that has affected the way that the police function. And so that's sort of the root of, I guess, where all of the fault has come from. Those two things. One, that, you know, authority and power is has always, since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve, has kind of been up for grabs of exploitation and sin and evil. And secondly, we don't understand the role that the government should have. Now, if we look at the civil government, basically the way that I see the civil government and the way that the founding fathers of the West basically saw the civil government was that it ought to be a ministry of justice. That's the role of the civil government and that's how it should be. And like all authority and like all power, I obviously am a Christian. And so I see those rights and those things from from God. And the way that I see the civil government is that power has been delegated to the civil government for a specific purpose. And that particular power and authority is limited. It's not exclusive. They don't just get to do whatever they want. They're limited in that delegated authority. And the other thing is they're not God themselves. They have to obviously be underneath. The state is underneath God. What I think um, the civil government should do is reward good behavior and punish bad behavior. And we've seen almost these pillars and these foundations of our civil government almost completely turn 180 or upside down because I don't know about you, but I'm seeing uh, bad behavior rewarded and good behavior um, chastised or punished, which is completely wrong. And in doing that, that's why we're seeing police then acting outside of their authority and probably what they should be doing. And I think something, you know, we, we've got to remember is that a civil government presupposes a moral law and every single system of law is basically policing morality. It just depends on, depending on what your civil government is, where that morality comes from. And the founding fathers of the West, the Western civilization, which would be America, which would be, you know, England, uh, the UK, most sort of Christian countries in Europe. Australia, New Zealand, our our forefathers, our founding fathers, were all uh, men who acknowledged that there was a creator, that there was a god, and they structured the government to fit under that, and that's how they structured the government to function. And you know, over time, um, that's how morality was sort of formed, that's how laws were formed. And you you know, people at the moment we've replaced that with secularism and pluralism and multiculturalism and all these other sorts of things, which has changed and upheaved everything. So we've got everything completely out of whack and the police fall in that civil government, the police fall under that function, which is why they're functioning outside of where they should be. That's sort of where I think it all comes from in a nutshell.
1: Well, no, no it's, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting conversation is understanding the hierarchy of authority. Where does it come from? I mean. Where do the police get their authority to use violence against you in order to get you to comply with what the law appears to be or not? And we have to trace it back, don't we, through the system and through the hierarchy, at least in uh, the United Kingdom and Australia, which are under the same legal system, which is the common law system, you know, which dates back centuries and is probably one of the best Law systems in the world—it can be debated, but you know, it really is. It really does protect a lot of our rights and privileges. And during COVID, we saw that the British government were really unable to compel people to do anything. If you said you were exempt, and I was exempt, I was exempt, and they couldn't do anything other than break the rules. And when they really had to try and enforce that COVID lockdown, and people were saying, "I'm gone a minute," you. Can't do that to us. You haven't got the authority to take those rights away. And we tested it and all those things. But it's interesting to find where it flows from because in uh, the United Kingdom or Britain, it's the monarch, right, who is crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury under God to enact Mm. God's law. Yeah, and that's where their authority stems from. And the sovereign makes an oath to uphold god's divine law and to keep the peace and protect the people that's the oath isn't it that's why we transfer our sovereignty to the monarch, because you're saying you're going to uphold it you're going to uphold our our sovereignty our rights our freedom so therefore i will give you i will transfer some of my sovereignty to you but i've retained the right to withdraw it if you don't uphold your end of the bargain And the police are the extension, the final extension of the monarch's authority. And, um, you know, in essence, they are just an agent of the monarch, aren't they? So uh, if the police are misbehaving, then it must flow from those who are giving them their orders because the police, they just follow orders, don't they really? They're not rogue, as it were. They're following the civil government's instructions to enforce rules and regulations which are probably unconstitutional and I think you're right that's where the problem is it roots back to the the role of government and where the role of governments is heading um which doesn't look good you know it's this biomedical tyranny that they really tried to enforce during covid and I don't think it's going away and that was one of the most um, saddening things watching from the UK was the tyranny that was enforced in prison Island. I had a different impression of Australians that, you know, they were, they, they were a lot more free than they appeared to be. And what was that like being somebody like you who was very red pilled, you know, <laughs> and very much in, into freedom and, and truth.
0: Yeah. I think we've well and truly blown our reputation across the world, <laughs> you know, um, I obviously served in the police. I actually I went to America and actually had to do some work over there once for a case and uh, a few other places and everywhere I went everyone was like so impressed by Australians and thought we were really tough and you know I I've done a little bit of work with private military groups and it's always the same sort of thing like Aussie soldiers are tough like we're we're built tough and that's been our reputation. I think that's why the world was so shocked to see what was happening because it's like we just we just let it happen. It's like, we just put our head in the sand. We were either apathetic or we didn't care or, you know, we were happy for it. And the world was shocked because, you know, we've got Crocodile Dundee, we've got Steve Irwin, we've got all these, like you know, <laughs> Aussie larrikins, yeah. of, you know, that make, make news around the world. And we just, we looked, we acted like little high school girls.
1: The Australian man failed pretty much. You know, it seemed that the women like yourself were the ones that were speaking out and. the, the men were were neutered and nowhere to be seen other than wanting to drink their tinnies.
0: <laughs> well, look, there there are some great men who have been here. I can't completely disregard them. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I will say that. But something I find culturally speaking for men in Australia is they're more interested in sport and beer and their mates than politics and culture. And that's mm. part of our culture. It's always been that Aussie larrikin, Let, let's go skull a schooner or shoot the boot and let's go jump on a crocodile's back and see who can sit on there the longest like you know that's sort of and men are sort of more interested Mm -hmm. in doing that than understanding politics or you know laws and all of this sort of stuff and i think it was really like we it was really put under the microscope just how deep our failures were and are and i think it roots back to like how we were formed how we were made as a nation you know, you mentioned before that you know the sovereign is the head of the church basically in the UK, and they have to adhere to those sorts of laws and moralities and God's laws. And I think it was the Queen, and I'm interested actually to see whether uh, King Charles does this. But the Queen at the time uh, when she was sworn in, one of the things that she swore was that she would uphold God's laws, and she would in her mission was to further the gospel and. Mm. It's interesting how people always say, you know, church and state, you got to get rid of church and state. It's like, well, if people say that, it's like, well, hang on. (laughs) The monarch is the head of our state and she's the head of the church. And she's, that's part of what she swore an oath when she was inaugurated to, to push those things forward. And so it's a silly argument to begin with. And people don't understand the history of church and state either. Church and state was never to keep this the um church out of the state church and state was always to keep the state out of the church the other way around um, and, but people have uh, it was if you look uh, at the history of it it was so that families and churches were never governed by the state and you know there's there's all different um groups and and sort of functions within and, and that fall under the law but it was always to keep the state out of the church not the other way around so it's a silly argument to begin with but. Um, you know, in in Australia, um, we um, were never formed the same way even England was. We were a penal colony. Mm-hmm. And I think from the root of things and from the beginning, freedom wasn't something we ever understood mm-hmm. because we came here being given the freedoms by the government. So we've always valued security over freedom.
1: It's like an open prison where the... The convicts are afraid to roam, but the governor can revoke those privileges at any times, which is kind of what we saw, isn't it? I mean, because from England, watching Dan Andrews, I mean, I really had a visceral hate of that man. I, I He really triggered me really bad, right? Yeah. That, that this guy could be so dictatorial and so arrogant towards his own people. He was really, really a vile face of, of COVID. And is he still in office?
0: Yeah, he is actually, and there's an election coming up and people think he's going to get in, which is scary.
1: Yeah, Uh, well, right now I've got got even less faith in democracy than I had previous. And it seems as if the controllers have got the election system all worked out now and they know how to rig whatever they want to put whoever they want in. And yeah, but there was some of the Australian uh, politicians who there was Dan Andrews, there was his henchwoman who was one of the crazies. And then there was a mayor. Yeah. Some crazy mayor up in, um, you know, the outback, I think it was. They were the people we were seeing. And I was like, wow, that's just crazy. Because I I also think part of the propaganda of what was being done in Australia was to scare us, right? It was to scare Mm. other people, you know, in other Western nations, this is coming for you next if you don't comply you know and it was used as a propaganda example they knew what they were doing with that
0: yeah definitely and i think you know it it goes for all things they want one world one government that's that's their goal that's their agenda and so you're right if one country can fall then mm. the other governments go oh well look at look what happened in australia look how far they could push their citizens before mm. the elastic band snapped we could do that and i think that's you know it's happened it's happened in history it's happening now i mean i'm looking at what's happening with the dutch farmers um overseas and i'm going great if that goes through i think the australian government are going to try and do something so you're right it is it's all mm. sort of collective and they've all got like one mind and one way of thinking and so yeah i think definitely in terms of the response to covid i think the world was watching what we were doing and citizens across The country were going, oh gosh, I hope our government don't do what the Australian government did and it did, it was like beer porn and it it circulated the world and people were horrified. And the thing is people still could not believe what was happening. People would reach out and ask me and say, Evelyn, do you really have to wear a mask outside? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, hang on. And then they're like, do you. Do you really have to get papers signed by the government, like, like papers with a stamp on it to say you can leave your home? Mm. Yes. Do you? And then I'm like, it gets worse. You have to renew that every 14 days. So you can get a pass to leave your home for 14 days and then you have to do it again. And not only that, I'm like, I can't leave more than five kilometers from my home. I'm not allowed to. And people could not believe it. Like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, I'm sure I'm living here. They could, they just, people could not fathom the lengths that our government went to, to control our movements and our freedoms over here. And what people were seeing on the news was shocking, but even that was like a lot of the brute force of it and the physicality of it with the police and the enforcement. But what people didn't see is things that affected the practicality of just everyday living. So, you know, that didn't make the news, but it was, it was just as devastating and just as, you know, gut-wrenching. And just as um, horrible to live through just those everyday things that affected us as well that didn't make the news. It's like, I had a loved one die and I couldn't go to the funeral because only five people could go. I had to watch a grandparent's funeral on Zoom, things like that. And there are countless other people who had it far worse than me, whose uh, loved ones were in another state in the country, dying of something, had like 12 hours to live. And the government's like, sorry, can't come and say goodbye. Like, it's just horrific, the things that were Mm. done. Uh, that didn't even make the news. People lost their jobs. People lost family. I I lost a lot of my family. Mm -hmm. I apparently should be shipped off to an island with all the other unvaccinated people. My own family was saying these things about me. And it was just... It had a huge Im- impact on so many areas of Australians' lives. Like, it literally divided families. It's horrible.
1: Well, doesn't it feel good to be vindicated at the moment, though? is Because I'm watching with glee. I mean, I don't know how long it'll last, but I'm watching with glee. You know, the backpedaling we're seeing at the moment from uh, various parts of government, various institutions, and the classic was uh, last week. I think, was it the New York Times? It was calling for an amnesty amnesty. (laughs) sorry guys it was just a prank that got out of hand you know we didn't really want to lock you up you know in in camps but uh, you know people are just you know laughing at that for a start but it's it's um it's strange to see how they are really trying to change and shift the narrative now away from you know the covid um narrative that we saw over those two years and i think it was due recently to did you see that Dutch uh, MEP who asked Pfizer in a European court whether Pfizer had tested the vaccine um, for transmission and they admitted in the court that they hadn't. And he highlighted yep. that this was the entire foundation of the vaccine passport and all of the lockdowns mm-hmm. that came with it was that You know, if we didn't take the vaccine, we would be transmitting it to everyone else. In effect, the unvaccinated would keep the pandemic going. And it was a pack of lies. And it's come out in court. Mm. And they're all scrambling and all backtracking. And it it feels good that, you know, we were the ones that were able to withstand the biggest psychological operation in modern history. And we didn't fold and we didn't take the knee. And uh, it felt good. It felt good. But what are your thoughts in Australia? Is that same kind of narrative shift happening there or are they still trying to maintain the the scam
0: we are still trying to maintain the scam and (laughs) that's the saddest part about it is that all these things are coming out and still i would say majority of australians if we had to do this again would just do it again that's Mm. the that's the most frustrating part about all of this is if the last few years haven't woken people up to the fact that the government are not your friend uh I don't know what it will take. I really do not know what it would take. And, you know, I kept saying the whole time, when's the rubber band going to snap? Surely it's going to snap when children start committing suicide. Surely it's going to snap when five-year-olds, and this was reported in Australia last year, a five-year-old called the suicide helpline. Like, if, if things like this weren't going to cause people to say, like, what, what the heck would? Like, honestly, are we sociopaths over here or something? I don't know why we didn't. But you look at it now and all these things are coming out and we're still just going along with it. We only had our health minister, chief health officer, sorry, uh, in New South Wales last week, uh, maybe even this week, it was only a short time ago, say that there is now two new strains that we have to be careful, BA.4 and BA.5 Omicron, the cousins of omicron and we're going to have this huge spike in case that everybody needs to be careful we don't want to lock down before christmas they are still going on with this same narrative and you sort of sit there and you go the gig is up like what point do we stop buying tickets to the circus sooner or later they're going to have to pack the tent up and go home but australians just keep going and lining up for fairy floss and seeing the clown it's like just enough but uh i tell you what it it, it is nice seeing things coming out that vindicate me i'm just sad that my family and other people in my life haven't really got, got there yet. I get more sympathy from Americans and people in England and Europe than I do from my own countrymen. Uh because mm. we're still peddling the same the same tune.
1: I, I think there's some deep psychological problems that we face as a society and a civilization. And I, I think it goes really, really deep. You know, it's a spiritual sickness, isn't it, as well? It's mm. you know, the fact that people can be so um, subservient to the people who are traumatizing them and abusing them because that's what they're doing. They are abusers. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And they will abuse your children, you, your, your wife, you know anyone around you. They don't care. They'll do it. And uh, it's almost like you know the person who is being abused is so broken, is so broken that they just don't know how to fight back, or even if they should fight back. It's like you know when Big Brother when uh, Big Brother has tortured uh, Winston Smith and all Winston Smith wants after the torture is a cuddle from Big Brother. That's yeah. that's what he wants. And it feels as if, you know, there's an element of that going on. There's deep psychological trauma within the populations and we just don't know how to respond to these abusers mm-hmm. who continue to, you know, stick the knife in it. And it's quite sad. And, you know, we're, we're talking about how the police have got to the point where they're no longer representing the people and they're just enforcing the orders of the tyrants um how have we got here is is this malaise that we face in our civilization because we've drifted so far from god you know and i know that's something that you're you're very you have a lot of pride about being a christian and it's something that you know shapes your identity and about who you are and and I know that it's critical, you get criticized for being a Christian, though know, you're in this weird society that we're in. So what, what's your take on that and about our drift, our drift from where we were to where we are and how it relates to our understanding of God, you know?
0: Yeah, I think we're seeing the fruits of a rotten system. I think that's basically what it is. I mean, we can critique and and go through really fine details of what's wrong with the police and, you know, you sort of how why have we drifted and, and all these sorts of things and I could I could list off a heap of things recruitment it's quota over quality um, you know it, it's all these other things I could go go through it all um, it's all by design and all this but it all sort of you know when you're sinking in a ship you can you can do your best with the bucket to keep throwing the water off the side but until you find the leak where it's coming from and plug it you just you spend your whole life just fishing uh, water with a bucket out of the side of the boat it's exhausting it's tiring and it'll end up making you literally die of exhaustion um and so i think the most important thing for us to do is to find where the the leak's coming from and to plug it and it is i i do believe that it is because we are so godless and -hmm. i think it comes all back to our relationship with the government the reason why um, you mentioned before like we're being abused and people you know just want to cuddle at the end is because for such a long time we have as humanity or as even just our culture, we have replaced, uh, God with the government or something else. And, you know, when, when the government is our God or our parent, we can't expect them to do anything else, but treat us like their children and that's Mm -hmm. what they're doing. And so like any child with their parent, you love your parent. And if they discipline you or chastise you or tell you what to do, you want to suck up to them again. You want to get their approval. You don't want to disappear disappoint your God or your parent. Um, and so that's sort of the dynamic and the relationship that we have. And I think the biggest threat to tyranny and to evil is a group of people who pledge their allegiance to something greater than the state. And I think we've lost that and we're pledging our allegiance to other things and we're pledging our allegiance to to things of the world and things that are rotten and won't bear any good fruit. I mean, how how long do we have to do things before we have consequences. I mean, stupidity can't sustain itself. And mm. for such a long time, we've literally been stupid with what we've done. We've cut breasts off 14-year-old girls in the name of tolerance. We've cut penises off, off 13-year-old boys in the name of acceptance and, you know, healthcare. We've dismembered nine-month-old babies in the womb because a mom doesn't want the kid anymore and, you know, just let's just rip the baby out and kill it. Uh, in the name of healthcare and in the name of female and woman empowerment, we like, how long are we going to continue to mock God before He goes? Oh well, enjoy the fruits of of your system that you've created. You, you want to reject me? You you continue to uh, do things that that go against you know the foundations of that I've set before you. Then good luck, all the best to you, and that's what we're seeing. I mean. Mm. Uh, I think that, you know, we've we've mocked him and I think that we are sadly living in existence under his judgment. That's what I think. And it's not doom and gloom. I'm not saying that the whole world's, we're all going to burn in hell, but, you know, you you can't expect to do what we've been doing and not have consequences. And I think that's what it comes down to. We're so godless from the very basis uh, and basic sort of foundational structures. And from that, like you said, hierarchy, like from that will flow downstream and we're at the bottom here just catching all the all the crap that we've allowed
1: but it seems as if um there's something about jesus christ that offends them so greatly that it's open season on christianity it's you're not a rebel if you attack christianity because you do go and do the same attack on Islam or, or Judaism or even communism and see what happens to you, right? But, you know, you can kick and kick and kick Christ, right? And there doesn't seem to be any pushback. And there's nothing rebellious about that, is there? That's the, you know, the, that's the, the, the weakness of, of people who, are, you know, they won't go and show their same vitriol towards other religions that will bite you, bite you hard you know but so there seems to be something about the message of Jesus that they find so offensive and they want to destroy because it's almost like a, it's a sin in this atheist society that we're in now to even call yourself a Christian or to even talk mm. about Jesus and we see that with Kanye West at the moment he's being yeah. crucified isn't he you know and, and he he is a convert and has the zeal of a convert what what's your take on on Why the attack on, uh, because it's not on all religions, is it? It's on Christianity and it's on on Jesus. Why do you think that Jesus is such the focus of the attack?
0: Well, I think Jesus is the answer to the tyranny. I think that it's Christ and I think that it's Christianity that actually shackles the tyrant. Hmm. And so everything is about power. Everything is a shift in power. Everybody wants to be their own God. Everybody wants to serve themselves. Everybody wants to be the maker of their own truths and their own rules. Jesus opposes that narcissistic, self-indulged, you know, self-righteous sort of mentality and says, well, no, you're actually wicked to the core. And it's only by my grace that there is any goodness in this world. And I've bestowed my grace on you. And that is why you are good. And people attack Christ because... Um, he is a threat to their little reality that they've made up in their own head. Mm. And, you know, people often say, like that whole church and state thing that we need to get rid of God from systems and from everything. Um, but what they don't realize is by getting rid of of God and and of of Jesus and of Christ, uh, by getting rid of him, they're actually opening the jail of the tyrant, saying, now you have free reign. Because if 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 people uh if the state doesn't have an authority above them they become an authority in themselves and then they become the arbiters of all moral law and and of all morality and that's a very dangerous thing and so people are always fighting against truth and Jesus presents a truth that these people don't like because his truth is just the truth it owes no one anything it, it, it is the truth and it's unapologetic and it's often blunt and it's often hard and people don't like that people want to be their own god people want to be able to sleep around with 50 men before they get married and think that they're not going to have consequences from that people want to you know um have babies to six different men and have the government pay for and think that that's totally normal and people don't like the fact that there's a god that says that's actually wrong mm. and you should not live your way that your life that way um and so it, it all comes down to people wanting to be their own Jesus, their own their own God. What they don't realize is that, you know, when Christ died and he rose again, he defeated death and he's now seated on the throne. Christ is king. And I mean that in a literal sense of this earth. He, he is the king of this earth and people want to be their own kings, their own masters. They don't want to submit to that. And people don't attack other religions because I don't think that they pose as much of a threat as the gospel does. Um, the gospel terrifies people because people have to change. And well, it is for people's better, but they don't acknowledge that.
1: Well, he was defiant in the face of his abusers, wasn't he? Right? So he, he faced a, you know, more trauma uh, than than anyone could imagine. And even facing that trauma and, and that abuse, he still remained defiant, which is how you deal with tyrants. Uh, would Jesus have taken the vaccine? <laughs> That's the question. And <laughs> I guess the answer is no, isn't it? You know? Cause if he is god then why would god need to take the vaccine because that was one of the most disappointing things during covid is how many holy men bent mm. the knee to caesar and uh, not kept their faith in god and that was you know that was quite a blow i think because it it, it was the overwhelming majority I mean, even the pope even the pope was telling people to take the vaccine wasn't he how did you um how did you handle that as somebody who was a devout Church going Christian was it the same in Australia? Was the you know the the, the holy men that they fall as everybody else did?
0: Yeah, they were terrible. Look, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it.
1: Mm. I was
0: so incredibly disappointed because you know they're the sorts of people you know you you would think godly men who are leading a congregation, leading a church. They're the people that you look to for advice and for spiritual advice and comfort. All these things they literally threw the keys like over their shoulder to, to Caesar and here you go, walk into the church, you're now in charge and, you know, you can take the pulpit, go for it, that's yours. That's essentially what happened. There were very small of Australian ministers, men, who basically flipped the bird at Caesar and said, I'm not going to segregate based on facts. But I was a member of one of the churches of Australia. Um, it was like a reformed sort of uh, denomination. And I actually handed in my membership. Not because my individual church caved. My minister was good. He didn't segregate based on Vax, but he was one out of like three in my whole state of like millions of people that didn't cave. And the church itself, like the, the collective, the whole of the church or the representative of this Church of Australia caved. They, I, I knew lots of people who weren't even allowed to preach in their own church because they weren't vaccinated or their wife wasn't vaccinated and their children weren't vaccinated. So the church basically said, you can't even attend your own church, your own congregation, your own flock, your own sheep. And it was, it was truly, dis- it was disgusting. And the, the saddest part is even worse than what I explained. There were three men over here who created something called the Ezekiel Declaration. Now, this declaration was created by these ministers who reached out to all the other ministers in the country and said, look, it hasn't happened yet, but we feel like you know, using our discernment and reading what's happening, we feel like the government's going to make the church or impose on the church the same vaccination mandates that they're doing for businesses, for work, for you know schools and et cetera, et cetera. The church as a whole basically told these three ministers to stop carrying on that they're, they're not going to do that, and when it happens or if it happens, we'll deal with it then we'll see we'll see what happens, and these three ministers you know, waited and waited. And there you go. Within one week of all this happening, the government said churches had to close their doors to vaccinated. And honestly, the whole Church of Australia basically did. These three men wrote this Ezekiel declaration, which outlined the reasons why men and ministers in Australia should not allow Caesar or the government to dictate who goes in and out of those church doors. Now, the whole time during COVID, no one, no minister stepped forward would help, would speak on behalf of the church, on behalf of Christians and speak to the government and try and, you know, bridge that gap. Not one, but you know, when all the ministers came together and spoke up was against those three men who said, no, these are, they yeah. all started speaking out loud in condemnation wow. to those three ministers for going against the government. Isn't that sad? That the only time men, these godly men, spoke was against the three ministers who said, "Oh, I'm happy to put my name on paper, and if I go to prison for this, then so be it." And they condemned them. That, and that's that's, that's that's faith,
1: isn't it? That's the faith there, and that you know those three guys, and maybe know. maybe the, the guys who were speaking in condemnation don't have any faith in Christ or, or the religion that they're professing to preach because you know they're going along with the government, aren't they? And, and they're uh, compromising on what their spiritual beliefs are meant to be. And that's the problem, isn't it? If the minister, ministers aren't prepared to stand up for their religion, then why would the parishioners? That's where the, the weakness in Christianity is at the moment. It's being whittled down and whittled down to just the core people who who really believe it and who really are prepared to stand on on, on God's word, if you like.
0: It doesn't matter, like, what religion you are, where where you are, you know? I think... Across the spectrum, across all groups of people, across the whole world, there has been such a spiritual blindness. I mean, the, I did an interview with a minister, uh, Joel Joel Webben, and you know, we were sort of saying, you know, men in positions of power and authority, and especially men in leadership positions in churches, like ministers and pastors and chaplains and all that, they should do better. They should have a lot more spiritual awareness and discernment. Because those are obviously things that we need to have to function in this world as Christians or as whatever religion you you are across the world, you need to have those things to exist in a world that <laughs> you have to. And the fact that these people didn't shows a real spiritual death in the church and in religions across yeah. and in groups of people and the people who saw it coming. Those three men who were condemned, like, oh, you know, you're basically idiots for thinking that, they showed a lot of spiritual awareness, but there is, like you mentioned it before, there is such a spiritual blindness across the spectrum in all walks of life, all, all different people. It's like people cannot, for the life of them, see what's directly in front of their face. People can't see the truth. And I don't know if it's willful blindness I don't know if it's, you know, something else. I I don't know if people, it's like pathological liars where they believe their own lies, Mm. but there's certainly things that you can't really explain that are going on. It would seem like logical to come to a certain conclusion and people aren't coming there.
1: Well, it's like the sickness of atheism in a sense, isn't it? Because if you are truly an atheist and you don't believe in God or in any uh, existence beyond this realm, then you are really going to be afraid of death. Right? And if you're a yeah. minister who is preaching eternal life with Christ and God in heaven, then if you really believe that you wouldn't fear death. And if you don't fear death, then th- that's the only weapon the tyrants has over you, isn't it? That's the only weapon yeah. is that I'm going to kill you right? or I'm going to cause you great pain and suffering, whatever it is. But if you truly believed in in the eternal life after death, then that wouldn't bother you and you wouldn't be afraid. And that would give you the moral, spiritual courage to stand and fight. So for me, when these holy men folded, it just proved they don't really believe it. And what COVID did in a sense, it separated the wheat from the shard. You now it is, who are the people that are really prepared to stand on on what they believe and will face the wrath of the tyrant or will call out the bluff of the tyrant? Because in in England, that's what it turned out to be. We call their bluff, right? They did a little bit of, you know, um, a little bit of tyranny. But o- other than that, it was like, well, actually, no, I'm exempt. Yeah. And okay. Okay. You found us out. You found us out. And, <laughs> you know, we went about our business like n- nothing was really happening. It was everybody else who was complying. So, so yeah, it, it, in some ways it was a really terrible experience, but in others it was enlightening because I found out a lot about mm. myself, I found out a lot about my friends, family, compatriots, and, and people around the world. So it was a, it was an apocalypse in a sense, cause it was a revealing. Yeah. yeah. So the guys the the people who, the three guys who signed the Ezekiel document, where are yeah. they now? What's their position now? Are they still being condemned or has the tide turned?
0: Yeah, look, they're still sort of being condemned. This, this is sort of the thing that we've been speaking about. And I think it ties into what we were speaking about earlier with that New York, post whatever about am- amnesty and all of that yeah the, the thing is we, we should be forgiving and mm-hmm. and as human beings um we should want to reconcile with people like yeah, it's but, not but, natural but justice, for us but,
1: but justice is important if we don't get justice then how can we reconcile so amnesty yeah but yeah. you know like, we need justice first
0: oh absolutely yeah so that's sort of where i was leading to in that you know, like as human beings, we should, our ultimate goal should be reconciliation. Like living in conflict is unnatural and Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable for everybody. But the thing is there needs to be repentance. Mm -hmm. There needs to be justice. And without repentance and without justice, there can be no reconciliation. And I don't think The burden of forgiveness or amnesty rests on our shoulder. It rests on those who wronged us. And Uh. if that isn't offered to us, like we have a responsibility to not walk around as bitter and, you know, begrudgingly awful human beings who have a chip on our shoulder for the rest of our existence and blame people for our own sins. I think forgiveness is something that we, we should have in the sense that we don't let the wrongs of others turn us into bad people we have a responsibility mm. to be above reproach and to not lower ourselves to the standard of, of others but nowhere does it say we have to to forgive and, and forget without repentance like forgiveness even biblically is you repent and you're forgiven you know there's there's some sort of justice in in the repentance and we're not seeing that and you know So many of these churches haven't apologized. So there's a lot of us over here who feel like refugees. We're like, where do we go? (laughs) We don't have a church because no one said, sorry. Like I can't be under the headship of a man who shut me out of a church for two years. And then all of a sudden is like, oh, the government says you can come back now, Evelyn. Come on. Like I can't fall under that man's discipline. But the problem is, is that
1: even if they do apologize, he's proven that he's not worthy of leadership. Right, so yes. so the, yep. the apology would require a resignation to go with it, which, you know
0: Exactly. Then
1: it's a, a power bottle, isn't it, you know?
0: Mm. mm. And I think, you know, I spoke about this with that minister I, I mentioned before, Joel. And what I was sort of speaking to him about was the fact that even if there is repentance, even if there is, I'm sorry, can you forgive me, part of that should require that particular person to resign because they've shown that they lack the qualities that any person in power Or authority or leadership should ever have. Because part of being a leader is to be spiritually aware, is to show discernment, is to show wisdom, is to show courage is to show sacrificial love which means they would sacrifice their well-being for the well-being of other people those are things that leaders need to have and when you have somebody in a position of power and authority and of leadership there's a higher responsibility for them Mm. it's like police officers they should be punished more harshly for crimes because they've been given and delegated such a you know a a unique set of powers if they abuse that, that that should be it and these people have proven that they lack those things. So even if there is, you know, repentance, they should, as you mentioned, they should step down from these positions and they should make way for men who actually uh, did the right thing. And, you know, it, it sounds all doom and gloom. Like you said before, I think it's been good. It's sorted the wheat from the chaff, uh, not just that as well. You know, I think it's, it's birthed a new era of shepherds and, and of men and of leaders. I'm not one of those feministic men. I'm happy to say men should be the leaders. I'm, I love the patriarchal world. That's how it was designed back in Genesis and that's how it should be. And it's deviating from that. That makes us uh, a matriarchal world or an evil patriarchy. I don't like it. So I'm happy to say, you know, all of this, I hope gives platform or gives an avenue for real strong men to Mm -hmm. step up and to lead not only lead their families, lead their churches, lead, you know, the, the government, um, but, you know, just to lead the culture in a direction that is better for everyone. I hope that if the silver lining to all of this is that. Uh, that that's my hope and, and that's where my hope sort of remains because I have seen, you know, lots of men in Australia who um, weren't happy with how the church responded. So they've actually left all church denominations here And they've opened their own new church, an independent church and said, well, if they can't do it properly, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I think so much of everything from uh, occupations and from careers and from every, you know, even ministers and churches, everything is turned academic. And we've almost, we've lacked for such a long time as a society, like a calling to, or someone who's suited for a job. It's like, If a minister goes to a Bible college, he gets a piece of paper and goes, yep, now I can be a minister, but he might not necessarily be good at it. Similarly, with police officers, you get police who can these days pass an academic exam, but you put them on the street and they have no street smart and they're useless and hopeless and shouldn't be there. So we're seeing, I think, the breakdown of an academic world. And I hope that it gives way to, you know, quality over, you know, these academic degrees coming through men who might have been carpenters who now are ministering a church, but they're called into the position. Mm. Um, And hopefully there's a shift of power and shift of authority. And these men sort of step up to the plate when we need them most.
1: Hey, just a reminder, as you know, those engaged in the struggle for truth and justice face an uphill struggle against the soy boy censors at YouTube, who continue to suppress this channel and prevent the truth from reaching you. So by clicking the subscribe button below, you're giving the middle finger to YouTube by supporting independent content creators like me. So if you've got what it takes, subscribe today. Now back to the action.
0: So we're seeing, I think, the breakdown of an academic world. And I hope that it gives way to, you know, quality over, you know, these academic degrees coming through. Men who who might have been carpenters, who now are ministering a church, but they're called into the position. Mm. Um, and hopefully there's a shift of, Power and shift of authority, and these men sort of step up to the plate when when we need them most,
1: yeah um I think they are i think I think that, like what you say, mm-hmm. I think um there is uh definitely a, a new wave of people who um recognize what they did during um the health crisis of the last two years i mean, I mean on a personal level, you know uh, um is that I know that I didn't fold and I didn't yield, and I know a lot of people around me didn't fold and didn't yield and They're the people I know I can rely and trust upon. And likewise, they do too. And and that network grows. Um, And especially as more and more of the narrative shift happens and the more we're vindicated, the more people realize that, okay, well, maybe they have got something to say. Maybe their opinion is valid. Maybe the warnings that they're giving to us should be heeded because that's all it was. We were raising the alarm and letting people know what these tyrants were trying to do to us as a people, as a population. And, you know, that, I think, can only give us strength moving forward. And I'm very positive about the future, despite the many attempts by the state to demoralize us, and that's that's their main weapon, is that they just seek constantly to demoralize us because a demoralized person is defeated, and he won't fight back and he won't resist. So they'll use all psychological um, tools and techniques to, to, you know, make us give up and demoralize us and make us think that it's hopeless to um to push back and what what's the famous meme is that if the situation was hopeless they wouldn't need propaganda you know and they have <laughs> yeah. to do propaganda constantly in order to suppress us and keep us down but uh, it, it's not working though I don't think I think um this winter is going to be interesting to see what they're going to pull out the bag um they're talking about another COVID but I just can't see it I just don't think that's gonna wash again, at least in England. And they tried it with monkeypox and that kind of fell flat on its <laughs> face. And I don't know what they're gonna pull out the bag this time, but they think they may try, but I don't think it's gonna work. Um what what are your thoughts on on because uh, I always wanna be positive. This we we can win, we will win, God will win in the end. Um what what are your thoughts on on um what we can do about it as individuals? What what kind of ideas and remedies are you you know, exploring yourself in your own life because you're a farmer now, aren't you? Which is a, a great way to rebel.
0: <laughs> yes. It's honestly been the best career change I've ever made in my life. And <laughs> if worse comes to worse, I tell you what, I've got plenty of cows here that I, I can survive the meat crisis. I'll tell you that much. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, look, I think that it sort of comes down to where our focus is moving forward from here. And you've got to look at you know, I guess who they come after the most and that's families, that's children, you know, get them young and you can indoctrinate them. And I think they're they're banking on the fact that for such a long time, children have been basically offshooted to or delegated to other things other than their parents so they can indoctrinate them. And they're hoping that this, you know, new generation, they can just kind of sweep in and take over. I think that COVID will turn into climate. I think the lockdowns will probably be that in the future. It'll be with have lockdown through winter because we, we don't have enough, you know, the, the grids overrun and we don't have enough power. So everybody has to, you know, stay in and do this. I think that's more the path. I think you're right. I think the COVID narrative for most places, um, it, you know, is has done its course and people I don't think would buy it. But I think the way that they can shift that power and authority now that the precedent has been set will be through way of climate, which has been around since I was a child, the hole in the ozone layer, the acid rain, global warming, whatever it is. Now it's climate emergency. Like it's always been there. It's the, it's the elephant in the room. Mm. Um, And so I think that's how they will edge into it. And you can see how they're linking it together already, how they're saying, you know, COVID has healed the earth, (laughs) you know, and then you've got the national geographic magazine, as well as a couple of other more environmental, you know, sort of media outlets who are sort of saying, and, and putting forward the idea of climate lockdowns to help heal the earth like, like COVID. So you can see how they're, they're connecting it and the thread is sort of weaving them together. That's how I think it will go. But how we stop that and I think, long-term solution is by stop, sur- stop having a surrogacy for parenthood. Too many parents um, use daycare as a surrogacy for parenthood and it's going to hurt some people's little feelings. But, you know, there once was a time when, Parents were happy to have children and wanted to have them and didn't see them as an inconvenience. And there was once a time where mums wanted to stay at home and educate their child and be the primary educator and caretaker. There once was a time when dads would work and and come home and where the nuclear family functioned. And I think that if we have any chance of, of beating the tyrants and uh, this constant Cycle and these waves that we go in and out of tyrants and out, you know, throughout history. If if we really want to just jump off that merry-go-round, we have to protect the four walls of our home. That's honestly where I think it starts. If you protect the four walls of your home and where your your base is, then everything else is an extension of the home. You know, you you have your four walls done, and then you extend those principles and that morality and that way of life into the community, and then you build strong communities and you have strong churches, and then you have, uh, you know, all of this is happening, the culture changes. And then once that changes, that's when policies and that's when everything else in the government can change. Um, so that's where I think it starts. And I think,
1: mm.
0: you know, like we, we have to, that that's how, we, that's how we do it. We have to love our children. We have to raise them and we have to stop um, letting the government think that they have that authority over the family. Because... Government men shouldn't have any authority over that side of the family.
1: Absolute zero. They shouldn't have any authority over your family whatsoever. You know, mind your own business, you know, but I agree with you completely. And that is why we see such an attack on the family, such an ideological attack on the family. Because um, as a unit, as a family, we're much harder to control and defeat. And um, that was one of the, you know, people talk about the idea of um, feminism and women going to work and, and you know having their own careers, which is great. If that's what they want to do. But it was talk about, actually, it's a, one of the reasons the system did it was because it became another tax source, that women became another tax source. But I think it's deeper than that. It's because they wanted the children. It's because once the mother goes to work, then the only place left for a child is to go into the schooling system, which is nothing to do with education but merely to train obedience from the children for whatever ideology that the state wishes to indoctrinate or impose on the children because the parents aren't there they've got them They're you know they're they're captives literally they're captives in four walls so uh, not only do i think the schooling system needs reform and i think it needs abolishing completely i was on a i was interviewed on a podcast myself recently for um podcast a thumb. it's called in, uh, in England, which was a 30-hour podcast with different guests coming in. And it was to raise money for legal costs for a group of mothers in Wales called Public Child Protection Wales who were suing the Welsh government for trying to force and impose new legislation that would teach sex education to three-year-olds. To three-year-olds, right? And they are trying to force ram this in and uh, it's really dark and Machiavellian what the policy is and outsourcing it to private companies. They're not telling you what they're teaching the kids, but it's, it's really bad. And these Welsh mothers have said, no, we're not having it. And they're um, suing the Welsh government in the high court in, in England. And a judge has accepted their case. So it's going to be aired in public, but they need to raise £100,000. They've raised fifty. But my position is, okay, yeah, great. I really, really hope you succeed. But even if you do, the governments are just going to come at it again from a different angle or from wherever else it is because the schooling system is their system. It's not ours, it's theirs. Mm -hmm. And they use it not Mm -hmm. to educate but to indoctrinate and to teach obedience. So homeschooling, Mm -hmm. you know, that's probably one of the most revolutionary things we can do is to win back our children from from the clutches Mm -hmm. of the state. How is that in, in Australia? Because I know during COVID we saw a massive boom in homeschooling, especially in America, same in England. Is that a thing in Australia?
0: Yeah, homeschooling isn't huge in Australia. It's certainly not like it is in America. Uh, We've seen a lot of people through COVID who were sort of forced to have their kids at home because our schools shut down for like two years. Um, A lot of parents sort of said, oh, I can do this actually. Uh, This is really, this is easier to do. Mm. And they made it happen. And so they sort of took that step. But we're still, I think we're very behind in terms of homeschooling over here um, than a lot of other countries. I think, you know, from the very foundation of Australia, we have always relied on the government to give us everything from our healthcare. We have a public healthcare system from our education. And the way that we're sort of set up over here is that we don't have any personal responsibility because if something goes wrong we know that the government's always going to bail us out. That's how it's always been. If you go bankrupt, that's okay. The government will give you welfare after Mm -hmm. that, you know, um, you know, if you can't afford education, that's okay. The government will do it. You can't afford Like that's just sort of how we are. And I think it kind of falls into, um, many of our institutions, including education. Um, and almost the, the government over here has almost assumed, uh, full authority over the child, over parents. You see parents, and this happened sort of over the last few years, parent, the kids have brought stuff home um, and parents are at home now so they can see what their kids have learned or mm. are learning. And the parents have been shocked. And the parents are like, wow, what's going on? And then when the parents have confronted the school, the parent then gets in trouble for questioning the teacher. And it's like, that's so backwards. That's so wrong. You know, t- I think that teachers... And principals and the education system need to be aware that the parent is the ultimate authority and that they answer to the parent, not that the parent answers to the school. And that's where a lot of things go wrong, but we're still, because of how we're set up, just a very foreign idea for parents to take responsibility of their child's education. We're almost told that, oh, you're not a school teacher. You haven't, you haven't got a diploma of education. Or oh, you wouldn't be able to, you, you're incapable of teaching your five-year-old how to count to 10. Like that's how they've sort of made people feel. Um, so Australia is very behind, but there, there are some encouraging signs that parents have been more aware of what's going on in the curriculums at school. Because like you guys, we have this, uh, like what you mentioned with that Welsh, uh, those Welsh uh, mothers, we have something over here in Australia called the safe schools curriculum. And it's this safe schools Thing that's brought into uh, and it's in the curriculum and it's the same thing. It's sex education for like five year olds. There's things like masturbation that is in there, and it's like, well, five year old mm. needs to learn about that. Like, come on, like, and people people think that you know, oh, stop sheltering your children. It's like, no, 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 no. Mm. Sit 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 back down, Satan. <laughs> like, you have no place here. Um, <laughs> not today, yeah, Satan. Like, mm. no, that's right. It's mm. like if parents want to teach their kids. Those things, that's up to them, but that's, that's what's done in their home. That's not what some stranger who doesn't know that child personally gets to teach them at five and the parents get to decide if it's at five or if it's at 10 or if, you know, if, if dads have daughters, they can decide it at 30. I'm just joking. But, but seriously, like these sorts of things should never rest on the responsibility of the government and of the state. So Australia is really behind, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll never send my kids ever to no. school, including private schools, because our private schools here are funded by the government. So even though they're a private school, the legislation is there now that if you know a the curriculum still has wants- to be taught,
1: doesn't well, it? It's the same exactly. curriculum. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: if they don't, well, they don't get funding. And if they don't yeah. get funding, they can't have a school. So it, it's just impossible here to send your kid. To a school And I feel sorry for the parent
1: With all of the institutional child abuse That we've seen in England I don't know what it's like in Australia But over the last 20, 30 years You know The revelation of all of the institutional child abuse That's being committed in England And all of the care homes And all of these um, MPs and celebrities And it's sick But yet we're meant to trust the state With teaching Mm. children about sex At the age of three After what they've done After their history I mean people must be mad to trust these people yeah. with their pride and joy, your child, that's you right. know, to, to, to educate them with this, uh, well, it's not education, it simply isn't education, it's it's indoctrination and it's teaching them how to be um, right. abused, you know, basically that's my view on it, it's, it's outrageous, it's totally outrageous, you know, that right. we're even considering it.
0: But I don't think, I think sort of what you said, I don't think people see their children as their pride and joy anymore. Mm -hmm. And I know that's going to hurt a lot of, you know, feelings. (laughs) I don't really care about people's feelings. The truth is the elderly and children are seen as an inconvenience on a, on a cultural level. And, you know, I think motherhood has become so narcissistic. You know, it's always about self-love and I need me time so that I can parent. It's like, no, you don't. You just need a kick up the backside mm. and you need to be reminded of your responsibilities and that the whole, you know, you chose to have a child. That's your priority. You know, there's all different types of love. And one of the loves that is spoken about in the Bible is agape love, which is a Greek word which stands for sacrificial love. I mean, love isn't a one-sided thing, all about emotions and feelings is practical size of it. And agape love is sacrificial love which is a love where you, you love someone so much, you would sacrifice your own well-being for their well-being. Mothers and, and, and fathers have lost that agape love, that sacrificial love, and it's like, no, I've got to take care of me before the child. Well, how about you just grow up and you be a parent because you only have a child at this age once. Mm. And there's a, there's a really incredible uh, psychological study that was conducted in Australia where they got a whole group of kids and they threw them in this, this mock sort of classroom setting. And there was a group of them and, and a fake teacher came in and said, okay, we're going to do this lesson. I've just got to leave for five minutes. When I've left for five minutes, you're not allowed to do A, B, C and D. Great. Okay. Everyone understands. And then the teachers left. They've got cameras, they've got audio set up and they watch the children. And like all kids, they're curious. They basically do what the teacher said not to do. And then they bring after the teacher comes back in, she's like, oh, I told you not to write on the blackboard. What, what have you done? And then she brings them all in and says, okay, we're going to have a discussion. Can anyone here tell me who, what, which child drew on, on, on the blackboard? And it was interesting to watch the dynamic of these children at only five years of age. Uh, I think it was four, sorry, four years of age and watch them uh, figure out what they were going to do. Were they going to lie? Were they going to tell the truth? Were they going to change things? like And basically all of these studies were done on the response of these group of kids. And it proved on a psychological level that at four years of age, a child starts to lie and a child starts to form loyalties and loyalties to friendships. And these kids that were spend more time at daycare than with their own parents started to form bonds and attachments to children uh, in their class or in the, in their daycare class. And you saw children... Um, who were at daycare five days a week, they would lie for their friend at four years old and say, oh, he didn't write on the blackboard, miss. But the children who had only owed daycare one day a week, they didn't lie. They told the truth. And they started to show And basically the conclusion of this study was if you haven't won the loyalty of your child by the time they reach five and they go to school, they're spending more important time with the people in the classroom and with their peers, then with their parents, you've basically lost their loyalty and that's potentially lost them for good. And, you know, so, so often parents are using daycare as a surrogacy, you know, women want to get their careers and, you know, you know, fathers are absent because of whatever reason. And these poor children are thrown in these situations and that's where their loyalty is formed. And we, we, it's just, it's really sad. And and we, we don't see children as our pride and joy. And that's half the problem you know, like what What a gift to raise an eternal soul. And I think that's what people need to realize, you know, is that when, when a, a child is born, it's not just this life that lives 80 years and that's it. It's an eternal soul. And you d- dictate and determine majority of where that eternal soul is going to be. What a responsibility and what a gift and what a joy. And if mothers... <laughs> And, and fathers could see that and sort of invest in their children. Um, then, you know, half of the problems that we're seeing, if, if not all of them would be reversed and yeah, it's just sad predicament of our times.
1: Absolutely. Beautifully said though. And that's exactly what it is, you know? And, and and I think, yeah, you know, talking about how the family is the foundation of the Renaissance, if you like the idea that you're, you're right, that, you are you're, you're bringing into the world and developing an eternal soul is a, a beautiful way to put it and a, and a, a fantastic way of looking at it. it really is um yeah so but you're also we have a mutual friend which is raw egg nationalist you interview them and so have i and and one of his uh, main prescriptions is about taking control of our food and of our food supply and mm-hmm. You know, he talks about the Russian system, doesn't he? Where everybody grows their own food and backyard. You, yeah. And you've had quite a career change yourself from, you know, the front line of the police to, to, you know, animal husbandry and being a, a farmer. And so, so tell me about that, about that, because that in itself is a rebellious position, isn't it? To grow your own food, especially beef, because I eat a lot of beef. Right? So, um, what kind of, how, how did you find yourself? shifting into that, Um, what are your thoughts on, on farming and also raw eggs prescription and eggs Benedict option, which is, you know, slunking raw eggs, which I've seen that you're a bit of a master of yourself.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I sort of, um, I sort of got into it. Um, I, I I guess I didn't even mean to get into it, to be honest. And something that I've appreciated that, that Ren has sort of done is really show people the link between politics culture and food and once you see the link and, w- and once you see it you can't unsee it and everything to do with politics and everything to do with culture has somehow relates to food i think one of the biggest things um and and methods of control is of people is food obviously yeah. the food supply whoever controls the farmers controls the food whoever controls the food controls the world um and not only that i think that the government don't like healthy people because if you're healthy you're more likely to be self-reliant and you're more likely to take personal responsibility the government wants you dependent the government wants you subscribed to them like a netflix subscription for the rest of your life um, and when you see the threads between pharma big pharma pharmaceuticals you know big government um, and you see like food and you see them all weave together it all kind of makes a lot of sense and I think food is such a huge part of that. You almost like, you know, when you look at a diet, for example, people always say it's eighty percent food and twenty percent diet. And if you look at the world and, and culture and everything, it's almost eighty percent of of culture is shaped by um our relationship with ourselves and our bodies and our health. And the rest of it is, you know, all the other twenty percent is is the little things that fill in between. And so it just sort of happened to be that I was in this world and looking and starting, like I've always been quite fit and quite healthy, um, quite slim. I've always been quite sporty and athletic. You know, I've played sort of professional sports throughout my life. Um, So I've always tried to eat well and been really healthy, but um, what I thought was healthy (laughs) probably wasn't, you know, like superfoods like kale and greens and all these things it's like i've been lied to for so long i thought i was doing a good thing yeah, yeah. um and so i sort of uh it was a, a semi-regular on InfoWars, especially the last few years with everything with covid they kind of wanted to know what's happening on the prison island so through that um i sort of got introduced to that sort of men's world online um with with all of that and I saw the egg slonking on InfoWars and was like, you know what? I have a dozen chickens on my farm. I'm going to give this a go. And I straight up, I did half a dozen. Because I'm like five foot five and like 59, 60 kilos after a meal. So I was like, six is probably the equivalent of a dozen for a bloke. So that'll do me. And I did it. I didn't get salmonella um, like everyone told me I would. And I sort of have been doing it ever since for over a year now. Um, and you know, I'm actually 63 years old and, and look at
1: me, um, I, <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: you know, it's been, it's been great. So I've got mm. my own chickens here. Um, mm. and through that, I sort of really got, I guess, red pills on the food industry as I went along and man, once you go down that rabbit hole, it just is deep and dark and there are tunnels going off everywhere you're like oh seed oils oh wow Mm. sunscreen i'm like i can't wear this makeup anymore Mm. i don't wear this perfume anymore i don't wear this deodorant i don't even use that toothpaste anymore it just goes on and on and on and once your eyes are open to all these other things you just go wow
1: but that transformation can happen really really quickly can't it once you become aware of the whole food scam it it can collapse so quickly and you can be transformed very very rapidly yeah you know, I started. Mm-hmm. I started slunking. I didn't do the raw eggs. I'm not that brave. Yet. I started didn't do. Um, <laughs> I, I made the um the, the, the shake. You know, the garundi, the, milk shake, sh- the yeah. milkshake. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not quite ready for little raw eggs in a in a in a jar. Yeah, but you know, he's uh, definitely yeah. onto something. But yeah, it's it's you know, it's another part of the whole deception, isn't it? It's family. It's mm-hmm. food. It's politics. It's the media. I mean, there's. There doesn't seem that they seem to have all the bases covered until. You start to become aware of them and you can actually mm. go through it quite quickly and all of a sudden come out the other side and go, whoa, that happened quickly. <laughs> and I've, I've traveled quite a distance in such a short amount of time. You know, do, do you mm. feel as if that you went through a, a, a quite a big transformation during the, the health crisis?
0: Yeah, look, to, to be honest, I, I sort of was in this online space back since 2017, but here's a little secret. I actually wrote under a pen name for quite a number of years while I was still in the police. Okay. Um yeah, so
1: can you share the band name uh, or, or or not?
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, Girl Rising Above the Noise. So okay. I, I started writing about things um, you know, a, a long time before I came out with my name. And it was funny when that happened because I think people for such a long time thought I was some acne riddled, morbidly obese, balding forty-year-old man in mum's basement because that's like what all the people would say. Cause I actually had a cartoon sort of based on what I look like drawn up as the, as the, the picture that I would use to that name. Um, and people were like, just couldn't believe I would have been a woman saying these things. Cause I criticized feminism. I criticized abortion, all these things. So I have been here for a little while. So I feel like I, I I've kind of been awake to it for a while, but certainly as you said, with particularly the food stuff and, and like personal health, that really kind of, that, that really fast-tracked the last two years. So mm. I was sort of, I, I didn't like the government. I, I didn't think they were my friend. I thought the world was a, a big case of bipolar and I, I didn't like feminism or, or abortion. So I always was sort of in this space. Um, but yeah, definitely health for sure really so, mean, so you God. know
1: when you were in this space and you were using your um platform to express your frustrations with your understanding of the world was that like something that was building while you were in the police was, was this a, a, a was you torn between your faith and what you were being asked to do in your profession and this was the way that you were able to express those frustrations and and confess, if you like, was a form of confession, I I guess. Is that what was happening? Is that what was driving you during that period?
0: Yeah, I think to a sense. And look, to be honest, I joined the police when I was 18. I had no life experience. Um, I I literally had finished school and boom. There I was as a fresh 18-year-old, thrown in the most violent um, of suburbs in all of my state that I live in. And so I was really sort of thrust in there and into this world. Um, and so, you know, like I, I didn't really know what I got into. I was quite naive to, to all of that. And as I went along, it didn't take too long. I sort of realized that beat police or uniform policing really wasn't what I was comfortable with. I hated with a passion, giving people tickets Mm. for doing things that I would probably do myself. Like I could, like I always hated it and we were like, I, I could do a whole episode on things about specifically in the police that I struggled with, but there was definitely a struggle and I didn't feel comfortable with much of just your regular beat policing, which deal with those, you know, regular people like you and you and me. I didn't mm-hmm. like that. So and after only uh, two and a half uh, going on three years, I actually, I don't know, by the grace of God, it happened. I got promoted into a position to become a detective. So I was really young, detective as well. Wow. Um, and I went into like organized crime. Are you only five for five? Active. I am. And three wow. quarters. Just oh, wow. I forget
1: amazing. That three <laughs> um,
0: That's amazing. But I, 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 yeah. And the, the thing was, as well, is I was very well aware that I was a woman. And I didn't put myself in positions where I had to get my male offsider to clean up my mess, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. guys actually respected working with me because I didn't have this butch mentality where I was like, I've got to prove myself and I'm going to mouth off at this person and really piss them off. And then I'm going to get my male offsider, who's six foot two, to come in and clean up. I, I didn't do that sort of thing. Um, I had my nose completely shattered and my eye socket had to have surgeries on my face because of how much bone damage was done. So I, I was always happy to get in there and I tell you, I, I could probably flatten people twice my age, like, and I have, uh, sorry, twice my size and I have done it before. Um, but because I'm smart about it, not because I am physically stronger, but the point is, um, you know, like I. I didn't like being beat. So I got this detective's position. I did more proactive policing. So I wasn't in uniform and it was like more high end people, like people importing, um, firearms or drugs in planes and bring it. Like that was the sort of scale I did. So I felt more comfortable with my conscience. Like these Mm. are the real bad guys. Mm. I can do this. Um, and. Actual criminals
1: rather than someone who's breaking the speed limit. Yeah.
0: And then from there, I actually went to child sex crimes and child abuse, and I was a detective in that. So I was locking up pedophiles. I I did work with child sex trafficking. Um, You know, I worked on homicides of of children and stuff like that. So things like I felt more comfortable sitting there. So I was in a relatively safe position within the police with my morality where I felt Mm. comfortable. Mm. But at the point where I started writing was a point where I took long service leave um so I'd been doing what I did for a number of years I had enough long service leave to take off so I took long service leave I had a lot of time and I think I knew that the time was coming up where it was nearing my end and I didn't really quite know where I fit and this was something stupid I look back on and Evelyn and I'm like so dumb I didn't really know who I was apart from a cop I was 18 it felt like who I was as an identity I felt like people related to me as a person in my personal life as oh Evelyn's the cop like and I'd have friends and family call me and need me for things or advice or what should I do and I felt helpful and useful and so I thought if I give that up what 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 am I like Mm -hmm. I don't know who I am and stupidly and now I look back now I'm like well my identity is in Christ and there's like being a woman and you know you know embracing femininity and all the things that that has to offer, like being a wife and a mother and all these things, that's far more fulfilling than, you know, wearing a badge and having someone call me and say, Hey, Evelyn, what do I do if someone gives me a ticket? (laughs) Like, you know, so it, it sort of shifted. But at the time when I did start writing, it was like a journey where I didn't quite know who I was going to be. I knew I, it was leading to a point where I felt so it was it was like your it was, it was
1: your it was your transition it was your um mm-hmm. uh, way of preparing yourself to leave the police and um uh, begin your new life do, do you think in some ways um how, how did you get doxed by the way was that a natural thing or did you dox yourself
0: i doxed myself yeah. i did so once um so once my paperwork came through and it actually um, Like I I got delivered in the mail, my, you know, my years of service from this year to this year, and it was all done and dusted, handed my badge back in, handed my gun back over, all the rest of it. Um, I it was like a coming out party. (laughs) I it was Uh like, I, I didn't, all I did was change my name on Facebook from Girl Rising Above the Noise to Evelyn Ray. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: and I just sort of waited for people to sort of do, and then I sort of did a post about it. Um, Hey, it's B, I'm not the 40 year old man in the basement. Um, it, I actually am a woman and I, you know, I actually am this and it's funny, I'll send it to you after the show. There's a picture of the cartoon that was sort of made, uh, based off me and then my face. And it's interesting now that you see it, you're like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. it was her after all. Um, but yeah, I doxed myself, um, because I could, I couldn't before that point legally, um, because of. What I was obviously I still was technically mm-hmm. even though I was on leave at the time, I was still technically employed by the police, so I couldn't, but um it was actually it was really heartbreaking for me to leave the police. I was so upset with how it happened, um but in hindsight, I'm glad that it did because it sort of allowed me to disconnect myself from that brotherhood because you know I served nearly twelve years, yeah I, I've seen some of the most horrific things you could imagine, like. One of the last jobs I worked on was the murder of an eight month old baby. And I had to be present for the autopsy of that. I had to take the brain oh in a little eski in a plane to some like I, I've had to do, you know, I had a um, an offsider get shot and killed that I worked with doing a search warrant. I had another police officer shoot herself in the head in front of me. I miss long I've, I've been through a lot of things, right? And so, um, for me, when I left the police, um, I expected some sort of congratulations on ruining your life forever for 12 years of service (laughs) well done Evelyn or something Um, and I didn't get anything I was on leave at the time and it was during COVID when all these things came through and I got something sent in the mail not even a representative of the police came and gave it to me and I got a phone call from my parents saying "Um, we've got a letter in the mail from the police saying you need to call them and I never changed my address I left it as my parents because I was I'm like, oh, if bad people find me, they can kill my mum and dad. And at least I'm safe. Um, just kidding. But um, anyway, so they called me and said you need to call this number, and I called this number, and it was part of a police branch that deals with awards and things. And they said you've won a police uh, commendation of bravery. Uh, you know, you've won a bravery medal, uh, Queen's commendation, I think it was actually. Um, Amazing. What do you want to do with the medal? And I was like, what's it for? Like. You know, what was this for? Um, And it was a job that I did in 2009 where I got in a foot pursuit with a guy who just did an armed robbery um, at a pub and he had a sawn-off shotgun. And I tackled him and I got him and he shot at me. And It's a long story, but that was in 2009 and this was in 2020. They finally gave me a medal for that incident. So I'd forgotten all about it. I didn't even know what it was for. Found out it was this. There's only a certain amount of those awards that have ever been given out in this country. And you know what they did? They shoved it in the mail with Australia Post, the medal, and just dumped it on my doorstep after. And I remember opening the front door and picking up the medal. Oh, like, great. No one even, like, it's How a did that make you feel?
1: How did that make you feel about the oh. whole experience? I mean, was, was it kind of like you were thankful to, it was over or was it a disappointment mm-hmm. in that other way they, you know, respected the time that you'd give them?
0: I was a bit, I was, I was a bit sad, a bit disappointed, yeah. but like I said, it, it changed once I realized, because you're always told when you're in the police, you're just a number. You're just a number. You're nothing important. You're nothing special. I have a badge number. That's who I am. I'm, I'm not Evelyn. I'm that number. And you know, you kind of, uh, you hear it and, and you kind of think maybe that's what it is, but there's a part of you that doesn't actually expect that to be true, but it literally was true. And so, as I said, it it was helpful for me. Um, because I could kind of, uh, some closure. Yeah. And, and move on from it and go that, that part of my life's done. Um, and you know, I've been able to, since all of this really analyze Mm -hmm. the police as an organization, the function of police, the role of police, where we go wrong, where we could go better, what we should do. Um, and I think think being able
1: to, sorry to interrupt you. It was just something that was you know playing on me while you were talking is that. You know, we're very quick to condemn the police and quite rightly so in a lot of cases. But like you've just described there, some of the work that the police have to do with the risking their lives or saving other people's lives or solving heinous crimes from evil people. And they don't get, you know, thanks for that, really. You know, maybe internally they do or from the victims or in your case, you, you get a medal in the post 10 years later. You know, but but this, but it's a real conversation to be had about the police because you know it it really should be an honourable office and the police shouldn't be demeaned to give parking tickets out just to make some money for for the council and and, and I think it's mm. it's a big conversation to have and I don't know what the solution is or what even the main thrust of the conversation is but yeah I I think you you're, you're right and you, you're onto something quite quite big there because you know it it can be a really Dirty job, can't it? You know, you can get your hands after get really, really dirty. Uh and it's generally thankless because the public generally hate the police. You know, I, I don't think mm-hmm. they help themselves um with <laughs> no, some of their don't. actions that they do. But yeah, it's it's an unusual one.
0: Yeah, look, I'm very against defund the police. Like mm. I think that every civil government needs somebody to wield the sword. Because yeah. you can't make th- of law unless you can follow through with enforcing it. Imagine if somebody said, if you, uh, if you do this, I'm going to punch you in the face Mm. or something. And then people look at you and go, no, you can't. They're just going to commit the crime. So if you need, if you have laws, any system that has laws needs somebody to follow through with those laws. You need to have that threat of the sword. Mm. If I do this, if I commit this, if I break this law, I'm going to be punished for it. But the problem is Um, our police force and the structure almost needs to be abolished. We need a complete reformation like Martin Luther, how he nailed these things to the Catholic church door. We need like that type of reformation with the police. We need to change it. The basis uh, in recruitment, who we're letting in the police, um, and how we're educating our police, how we're training our police. And we really need to, um, completely make the police objective and, and impartial keep them out of politics, keep them out of culture, and literally have them as the sort of justice. And that is it. And they need to basically change uh, the whole way of punishing uh, good behavior and rewarding bad, you know, even from the way that our, our laws are uh, sort of shaped and formed, sentencing and stuff like that. It's all about rehabilitation instead of punishment. Well, that, that's just unbiblical and that's unjust the punishment for a crime should in itself be a deterrent from crimes again in the future but inst- and and rehabilitation should be a result of the punishment but it shouldn't replace it and the way our court system our legal system our justice system is is it's all that rehabilitation rehabilitating the offender well and I think that's completely wrong and I think that you know on like a whole judicial system is mm. flawed, and I think the only way to bridge the gap between law enforcement and civilian is to abolish and reform the systems that we have in place for the police because their role and their function is completely wrong, and it's completely completely acting outside of what their authority should be. You know, when I swore an oath. I I swore an oath to uphold the law in good faith. Yeah. In good faith, you have to remember the original purpose for the law being created. What we're seeing today is officers not acting in good faith because they're taking laws and legislations and things out of context, out of their original purpose, and using it to manipulate and wield the sword of injustice against civilians because the government has said so.
1: So it's it's also as well as that the problem for the police is that – they believe, I'm not sure if it's true, they're governed by statutes in the sense that if the government make a, something illegal, then the police have to enforce it regardless of whether that's right or wrong. And there are lots and lots of bad laws that aren't actually crimes. If you if you analyze them of what a crime is, you know, um, where there's no victim, <laughs> right? Where there's no victim yeah. and why are the police even getting involved with, with, with that stuff? Um, and, and also as well as that the police need to recognize that they don't have to follow a, a bad law either, really, is that in their office of constable, because um all police are constables and rank is only for the police internally, isn't it? So the chief constable is still a constable and still bound by the same rules of office as a, just a lowly constable. It's just that, you know, he's risen through the ranks within the police. But for me, as a as a, a citizen, you know, the chief constable is the same as a constable to me I don't care about his rank his rank is irrelevant to me mm-hmm. it's like are you doing your job as someone we entrust with public safety mm-hmm. uh, or or not you know and uh, I think we need to push back more against the police I think what we're seeing at the moment is that have you seen any of the auditors on YouTube people who audit the police now mm-hmm. so they'll hang around outside police stations with cameras and at first yeah. the police were really aggressive towards them they were like, get the camera away, go away. We're going to arrest you, all that. Then they were issuing the threats. But what's happened is, is because the auditors have persisted, the police have changed their behavior and they're starting to be much more respectful. They're starting to accept that these guys know the law and that they're there not to um, threaten the police, but to be uh, make them accountable for their actions. And it's, yeah. it's, it's actually proven to be something positive, I think, because the police are going, okay, well... We're not going to get away with threatening them here they keep coming back so maybe we might have to go and read some of the laws that they're reading to us you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and we're seeing a, a shift in behavior so, so yeah i think we have to push back don't be afraid of them because when we don't push back and make them accountable then they do become tyrannical and they do uh, act like rogue agents rather than the, the public servants that they are mm. i
0: think half of the problem as well is police aren't educated in law yeah like i as a police officer going through the academy like I came out of that basically not knowing how to be a cop. And it was when I went to the police station as a probationary constable and I had somebody, it was called an FTO, which is a field training officer assigned to me, that whoever the FTO was basically taught you how to be a cop, right? It wasn't what you learned at the academy. It wasn't what you learned in your textbook because they they got you to memorize things, but they didn't teach you to understand it. They didn't mm. teach you to understand enacted legislation, the difference between common law and state law and federal law, uh, the separation of powers. Mm. We, we, we didn't learn any of that stuff basically. Um, and as a detective, I had to learn a lot more law. It was a three year like degree that I had to do. And that's when I really started to understand law at a deeper level, but 90% of police officers don't do that detective's course Mm. and they're just slapped with that real basic thing. And this is what we were seeing over the last few years. Cops don't know what to do Mm. because First of all, um, they're being told, you know, if if it's a mandate or if it's this, they have the power to enforce it. They don't understand enacted legislation versus, you know, yeah. um, like a something that a chief uh, health officer might put together for a limited period of time. And I think it's this uh, lack of understanding that causes a lot of problems because cops are always expecting civilians to do things that civilians know they can't. But police yeah. genuinely believe that they can do this. And that's the problem. Mm. They genuinely think that they're the good guys. Mm. I don't think that they're out there going, you know what, I'm I'm the ultimate branch of evil and I'm going to throw my authority around. Sure, there are rogue cops like that, but most cops aren't like that. Most cops actually think mm. that what they're doing is right. And that there is the problem because I think they're you're right, though. It's education. civilians-
1: I think education is absolutely key and central. If the police don't know the laws that they're enforcing, then, you know, what are they? They're just blind agents of the state, aren't they, rather than the role that they've taken an oath to fulfill.
0: But that's how they're recruiting people as well. So Mm -hmm. they're recruiting people who don't ask questions. They're recruiting people who can't independently or critically think. They are, the recruitment process is deliberately um, pitched and and set to drawing people Who will just follow the hierarchy, during COVID, um, you know, as a police officer, you have discretionary powers. So you have the power to use discretion as to whether you um, will fine someone or charge someone or arrest someone or not. You have that power of discretion. There are certain uh, uh, laws that you can't use discretion for. For example, in Australia, we have domestic violence legislation, if it's a domestic violence situation. We're unable to use discretion. If the wife or the husband says, I don't want to charge my spouse. We have to, we we can't use discretion and say they don't want to. We have to, by law, still go forward. But majority of laws, we have the ability to use discretion. Now, during COVID, we had bosses so that people up in the hierarchy within internally in the police station, giving directions. To police officers that they were not allowed to use discretionary powers for COVID related offenses. And there were police officers who were using discretion and saying to a business owner, I'm not going to charge them for not mask mandating. I'm not going to charge them for not checking VAX passports." That police officer was then basically ostracized or they they got internally um, like in trouble through the hierarchy for that. And there was all these directions given from senior officers that if it's COVID, you can't use discretion. And that's obviously like got so many legal yeah. implications. It's unconstitutional, and, and it's isn't it? You know? It is, but these oh. police didn't know any better. Yeah. They've been told a direction from a senior officer and they're following that and they genuinely think they're doing the right thing. And it all comes down to them having a lack of knowledge of how the system works. And I think that has to really change if we're going to see change because the next time a pandemic comes around Mm. or climate lockdowns or whatever it is, police will just do the same thing until they're educated to know better.
1: I think, you know, I think it's a really, really important conversation. And I think it's a really important area of our resistance is that we don't have any hope of truly reforming this tyrannical state unless we have the police on side or at least Mm -hmm. to some degree um, you know supporting the people while they're just the enforcers of the state you know they're always going to be able to defeat us with violence aren't they you know and the, and the tools of our office so yeah I, I think it's a really really important conversation um quite controversial and um you know <laughs> they, they won't like like they don't like being criticized do they they don't like any uh, external judgment and they like to try and do everything internally but you know it, it's important and it's great to speak to you someone who's been inside the system and and uh, speaks very honorably about your time there and it's really been uh it's been great chatting to you so i'm gonna wrap it up now um is there anything you would like to uh tell us uh, anything you'd like to tell us about what you're working on at the moment and what projects you're involved with what's the future hold for for and ray
0: well firstly thank you for having me on it's been it's been a blast i've really enjoyed it cool. um and you know, I'm just sort of plodding along. I'm living the farmer's life. I'm being as self-sufficient as I can. Um, I write for cauldronpool.com and I do a podcast, a weekly show with them. I go into lots of theological things like Christian things, because I am a Christian. That's sort of what I do. Um, I bread and butter, but I also go into lots of culture and politics. I talk about feminism. I talk about, um, abortion. I talk about all kinds of other subjects as well. Um, the tyranny that we've experienced. So yeah, I'm sort of just Plotting along, doing those sorts of things. So if people want to check it out, feel free to.
1: Where can people find you? What what are the, what are your links?
0: Uh, so I'm just Evelyn Ray on um, uh, Twitter and on Instagram. Um, I did have a Facebook that I disabled thinking about getting it back up again, but I'm not sure. And I'm on all the other things like Gab um, and yeah, I'm sure yeah. if you just put it in. You'll I'll put the it.
1: links in the description as I always do. Um, Yeah, it's been really, really, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you about these topics and this subject as I could go on for a lot longer and maybe we can pick it up again in the future. Um, Have you got any final words that you would like to leave us with?
0: I think honestly, the, the thing that I think people should just take away from this is, you know, don't, don't use the last few years as an excuse to hate the world and to sit on your hands, but use it as an opportunity to better yourself, better your family and, Um, That's the best way moving forward and tackling these sort of tyrants in the future.
1: Evelyn Wright, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. And I look forward to uh, speaking to you again in the future. Thanks for coming on Eyes Wide Open. Thank you for having me. Wow, you made it to the end, a true supporter. I really hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed making it. If you want to continue supporting our work and be kept up to date on what we publish, then please sign up to my free newsletter, which I'll send out once or twice a week. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. And if you want to support us further, go over to Locals, where you can join our community. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.